Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. Today we return to a series of webinars catching up with farmers participating in various initiatives with Chagas. The signpost farms have been well publicised in the industry with main aims to help farmers implement technologies and practice change to help improve farm sustainability, including income, greenhouse gases, biodiversity and water. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Don Summers, who's farming in Wexford, and his tillage advisor, John Pettit. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome to the podcast. Don, I'll first come to you. Don, you might outline what your farm structure is like in terms of owned and leased land and how fragmented your land is. I farm 246 acres, um, of which 164 acres is owned, and there's 82 acres then of um, rented land, 45 acres of that is in a long-term lease, and there's 37 acres then in a short-term lease, and I also share farm an additional 22 acres. Um, then my uncle, who uh, I farm with, farms about 200 acres, and we work together where we share machinery and labour, and I suppose knowledge and experience as well as much as possible. Um, the land, the vast majority, would be spread over kind of a three-mile radius. Um, we have one or two smaller bits that would be slightly further away than that, but it's it's fairly compact in that sense. And um, like our average field size is probably about 12 acres. Our biggest field would be 30 acres and the smallest would be two. Okay. It's kind right. of a typical, typical um, Irish farm in that sense. Okay. Well, at least you're, you're lucky enough that it's kind of fairly close to hand anyway. It's not, not, you're not too yeah. far away, which is great. Yes, we've only one block where um, it's, it's probably three miles away. But at harvest, we have to go on a an hour-long trip with the combine because it won't fit over a narrow bridge. That's kind of our, our worst part. Okay. Well, well, it's only once a year. It's like the annual trip. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. And in terms of the, the, that ground that you have, do you have a, a, a sort of a typical rotation you try to run or is it a bit more piecemeal from year to year? Um, it's a bit piecemeal, I suppose, from year to year um, in that we I would have a good mixture of soil types and land types and um, in the heavier ground, the rotation is more focused towards um, winter wheat, and I would have a small amount of lighter, kind of more Clonroach series soils, and that generally would have a more spring barley orientated uh, rotation. I did try to grow more spring barley in my rotation a couple of years ago, um, but it just it wasn't working out for me in the in the heavier clay soils. So I have moved back to more kind of a oilseed rape, winter wheat, uh, then winter barley, then maybe winter oats, back to winter wheat, then kind of maybe spring be- spring barley, spring beans, uh, back to wheat again. Whereas in the, the lighter soils, I tended to face spring barley in more often than winter wheat, as I felt it performed better in, th- in those kind of um, lighter soils. Okay, but you're you're still trying to get in some of the some of the break crops into it, nonetheless, the likes of the beans yeah, and the oilseed. I grape. was I was trying to get in beans and oilseed rape, and um, particularly now I've refocused on oilseed rape because um, we did find grass weeds were getting harder to control, so the oilseed rape gave us good options to control, you know, to use different chemistry to control the grass weeds, and and apart from the rotation at all, that was a good reason to to move back towards growing oilseed rape. But we had been growing brassica cover crops, 
So we've had to kind of shift away from that and find alternatives to brassica cover crops because we don't want to give ourselves problems with volunteer brassicas and potential soil diseases. Yes, I know what you mean. So you mentioned yeah, you Clonroach series and you have some heavier soils in it there as well. In terms of the soil fertility, do you have a reasonably good handle on that down or what way does it, what way does it shake out in your farm? We'd, I'd like to think we have a, a fairly good handle on it. Um, our average would be kind of index, kind of mid to high index two for P and kind of in, index three for K and our line, our pH is will be fairly good i have kind of spent the last um i suppose 10 years through kind of john pettit's guidance trying to get the soil fertility levels right and kind of you know applying slightly more than offtake and just in order to build the p and k levels and that has given us a buffer for this year where we can scale back a bit and you know we without the soil fertility suffering too much we have that the luxury of being able to cut back slightly and in terms of a, a, a cultivation system or an establishment system, uh, Don, you're running a mintel, are you, at the moment? Yeah, we used to be the traditional reversible plough and one-pass system. Um, but in 2018, after a lot of consideration, we decided to go down the, the mintel route. Um, I suppose it probably started in 2017 when we fitted low-ground pressure tyres on all our trailers and... Uh, uh, chaps from the combine just so that we had you know the right steps in place and then in 18 we took the plunge and uh, bought a, a grubber through tams and all our crops were established by mintail in 18 and we haven't looked back i've sold my plough and i have no intentions of going back okay so obviously you're happy enough with that so have you looked forward i suppose the next step people often i suppose look at is maybe the no-till type scenario have you looked at that yeah, I've dabbled a little bit in no-till. I sowed some winter barley this year in a no-till system. We sowed a, a cover crop of Vasilia and Vetch and then drilled the cover or drilled the winter barley directly into that cover crop. Um, it has worked very well, but I'm, I'd be slow to jump to direct drill straight away because we have found the transition from ploughing to min-till hasn't been you know, it's not straightforward. There's a lot of practices you have to learn and learning to be patient and you can't force it when the land is not ready. You can't force it. And I suppose I'd like to get a proper handle on Mintil before I would go full into directory. It is something I would aspire to, but more in the long term than the short term. And I suppose it can often be the case where, where, where people who do have jumped into I suppose the, the, the no-till scenario probably caution exactly what you're after talking about and and talk about letting the land nearly get used to the system you're in for a little while before, before you kind of jump right into it. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, even it's just a different mindset in the way min-till requires a different mindset to ploughing and one-passing. It's a another level up for, for direct drilling and yeah, you have to let your land acclimatize to it rather than thinking you're going to just remove the grubber from the equation and everything's going to be perfect. It is, it's a steep learning curve. Okay. John, I uh, just want to bring you into, into the conversation for a second. You're obviously advising farmers all the way across South Wexford. How similar is Don to other farmers out there in your area? Don does stand out in that he's um, extremely willing to embrace and implement new techniques. Um, and Don, I suppose, as an individual as well, he's always um, very keen to research and debate something extensively. 
before he ever makes a decision, um, which is all important as well. And I suppose from my point of view as well, um, Don is also more proficient than most when it comes to crop agronomy, uh, which makes my job that bit easier as well. In terms of that, as in Don is walking his own crops and making his own recommendations with, with a bit of backup or guidance from yourself or others, maybe, is that it? No, I suppose it, like, if Don rings you on a phone, like John, Don automatically, like even there recently, uh, we looked at done GIs on OIC rape, like Don um, would have GIs done in advance if you even arrived on the farm. So um, you'd already be told pretty much where the GI of given crops was going to be. Um, even if Don rang you on a given day um, and there was discussion on winter wheat, like Don would be able to tell you what growth stage of winter wheat was at and whatnot. He's just that, I suppose, from an agronomy point of view, Michael, he's that little bit of, uh, bit of, bit of a step ahead of most. Hmm. No, that's great. And and, and since you're, you're, you're handing out loads of praise, and I'll get back to you, Don, in a second for a reaction, but uh, just in terms of, John, what you know John's Don's farm really well John is there things from looking out or looking from the outside in is there things that you think that Don should be particularly proud of in terms of what he's doing on the farm and and maybe there's obviously another side of that are there a couple of areas where you think might be able to be improved a little bit the first thing that spring to mind would be he his interest in the whole area of soil health and soil and sustainability when it comes to soils. Um, and I suppose like it, these things, like Don has implemented a number of things in years gone by, um, including uh, the importation of organic manures, um, drilling cover crops, um, chopping and incorporating straw. Um, again, Don mentioned as well, having soils of NOP and pH, um, P and K levels, um, and again, I suppose the adoption of mintail in years gone by, and more recently, um, where Don has just trialed direct drilling on some of these lighter, more free draining soils. Um, I suppose, in terms of if you're to look at then, like where Don, where there's room for improvement, um, again, I suppose making better use of uh, yield map data that he that he has his three years of yield map data um, so it's about knowing how to take the information out of that and put it to best use um, I suppose Don as well um, it has to be recognised that he does have a very extensive level of hedgerows on the farm but no different than any um, tillage farm in South Cleave Wexford from a biodiversity point of view there can always be more done as well Don, just come back to you again. There's lots of lots of praise coming from John there. He he obviously likes uh, an awful lot of stuff that you're doing there, which is great. And you, um, he also brought you in. You started in in, in a previous Chagas uh, webinar earlier this year, and you outlined a lot of the actions you're going to take as regards um, how you're going to manage your fertilizer inputs this year. Um, and as John said there, you appear to have a very good flow of data coming from some precision tools on your farm. We might get back to that in a minute. But you are have decided, I think, to go with a good bit of protected urea on your on your farm this year rather than can. Um, and do you have experience of that in the past? And do you have any worries about using it this year at all? Or is there any steps you're going to take to make sure it's it's right, kind of thing? I have no experience of protected urea. Um, it was John put it to me that the potential cost savings were there. And when we priced it, there was a 27 cent a kilogram of nitrogen saving to be made. 
So, you know, when you do the sums, that's approximately 38 euros a hectare on winter wheat. So it was definitely, that was the number one factor in deciding to do it. Um, and then when I rang my local merchant, he said, yeah, he would be able to get me some protected urea. The only experience I had in the past was of um, unprotected urea. We used it on winter wheat a couple of years ago and the results, they weren't great. The spread pattern wasn't as I would have liked it to be. We played around with it a bit, but we didn't have the, we didn't have our own set of spread trays. So we kind of borrowed one from a friend for an eight for an hour and we played around with it a bit and thought we got it fairly okay. Um, but we just weren't properly set up to do it. This year, I was less wary of that because um, we had a new spreader on the farm and this spreader, you know, you had new veins, new discs, and it also came with uh, spreading mats and an app on your phone that I had used in the past. And I knew once I had that, it made checking easy and accurate. So once something is easy and accurate, you will check more often and we won't kind of reckon we have it close enough and just go with it. We'll be able to continuously assess the spread pattern. So that kind of removed the, the fear of not getting an uneven spread, of fear of getting an uneven spread pattern. Okay. And and talking about that, um, you, I, I, John mentioned your... Uh, you have yield maps there, um, and I think in the video you were talking about maybe trying to use them a little bit in terms of the varying the rates of fertilizer. Are you, are you going to try and do that with your nitrogen and your P and K? Um, yes, we we had. I have three years worth of yield maps. Basically, I bought a, an auto steer system through Tams, and once I had that, I kind of realized that I had the ability to connect it to the basic yield monitor on the combine and create a map. So at the time I had no real intentions of using it, but I said, if I plan to use it in the future, um, I may start creating maps now rather than, you know, to have a buildup of maps there for when I did want to put it in place. So this year, high fertilizer prices kind of made me kind of take the leap to start to push those yield maps into practice. And it started with doing soil tests based on the yield maps where traditionally we would have sampled every four to five years and split a field down the tram lines. Or if we knew historically there had been two fields in that field, we'd split where the samples are taken according to that. But this year we were able to decide where each plot was located based on the yield maps. So if we had an area that had been continuously yielding low, we reckon that the offtake there would have been lower than the area of the field where it had continuously had a high yield. And in the past, it was all treated with a blanket application rate. So we're expecting soil test results back any day, but we should see, you know, a difference. We're hoping we'll see a difference. And if an area requires more P or K, we can do a prescription map and match it to it. Or if an area is lower, higher in line, rather than taking an average for the field, um, my contractor has the ability to do variable rate line spreading. So we can do a prescription map so that we only put out the required amount in the specific area. Okay, that's great. I mean, it's 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 wonderful to see that um, data being used on farm because I think there's a there's a potential in lots of other farms for it to be used, but it probably just hasn't been switched on. And like you say, um, you do need to build up a number of years worth of it before it becomes anyway, anyway usable. You do. And at regular fertilizer prices, it's 
probably questionable whether it would make financial sense to do it on my farm. But this year, because of the high prices, it gives you the motivation to put it in place. Yeah, very good. So, John, come back to you and just bring you into that. In terms of all of the data, I suppose, which is available on the farm, is that making your job easier or more difficult in terms of advising Don about the direction to go? Like the more data that, that you have, um, the better enable you to make a more appropriate or, or accurate decision. Um, so that's a good thing to start with. Um, <clears throat> however, um, having additional data brings with it the ad- additional workload um, with analyzing the same data. Um, so that it does create a workload, right? But I suppose <clears throat> the long-term benefit um, of it should outweigh the work involved in it in that it should enable us to use inputs more, more efficiently. Um, it should enable us to optimize um, the yield potential of crops. And I suppose most importantly, um, it should enable us to create a more profitable and sustainable business for Don going into the future. Okay. And just talking about maybe the, the other areas, Don, just on your farm, the, the, say the non-cropped areas, um, and John mentioned it earlier there as regards to hedges, and you've like quite a few hedges around. Are you using margins around those hedges, and are you considering how you manage those hedges in the future in terms of you know, improving biodiversity and that kind of thing? Um, yes, I'm definitely looking at how I maintain my hedges and how I have been doing it in the past. In the past, I would have done the kind of traditional try short back and sides, keep it nice and tidy, and you know how it looks when you're passing by on the road. But now I've I've decided that I'll you know try let them get taller and wider, and you know just to encourage more growth. And I also had a conversation there with Eamon Grace from Chagusk, and he sowed the seed of thought for riparian uh, boundaries on fields and where they would be appropriate to use them. So this year I'll be looking at where is where could they be used best to say catch runoff where it might enter a water course or an open drain. Um, it's not something I would have considered too much in the past because I thought maybe it was a waste of land or it looked untidy but you know when it was explained to me how they could be of benefit and where the benefits could be if they were used strategically in the right place it doesn't necessarily mean you will have you know a lot of land wasted because as John said I do have a lot of um, hedgerows and drains on my farm but you know if, if it's done sensibly and put in the right place at the point where maybe the low point where it will enter and um, they can be of huge benefit. And John, just come back to you then, when you're looking at, uh, I suppose, uh, listening to the conversation there from, from Don, in terms of Wexford farmers in a general sense that you're advising, is there, is there more that they can do or is it very similar in terms of the actions in, in, in comparison to what uh, Don is talking about there? I suppose the first thing is having um, a good mixture of crops or even a crop rotation in itself um, adds to biodiversity. Um, I suppose like we'll all have fields that have awkward corners on them um, and that you find quite hard to get into with a drill or a sprayer. So like even planting the likes of awkward corners of fields with native broadleaf trees will add to biodiversity as well. I suppose most commonly, I suppose like having um, field margins where someone is not plowing up on into the boat of a ditch, it leaves more room for native species that will harbour and offer a food source for wildlife and, and insects might have saw. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 
plenty, plenty that can be done, I suppose, really. Um, Don, I'm going to finally come to you for the final question. And um, maybe it's a loaded one, I'm not sure about. Uh, when John approached you to become a signpost farmer in the in the scheme that we're looking at or in the in this program that we're looking at, um, did you take much convincing? Um, and then secondly, I suppose, in terms of if people are listening or for the people who listen to this podcast and are thinking about coming to visit your farm, what do you think are the one or two things that would be of real interest to them on your farm? Um, well, when John asked or suggested to me about the signpost scheme, I don't think I took a whole lot of convincing. I liked the idea of a kind of a, a, a farm, individual farm-led, you know, study of um, way of doing things. Um, I am in a discussion group that John has, and I was in another discussion group as well. I got great benefit from discussing ideas and going to other farmers' farms and see what they're doing differently and just having a kind of a good conversation or debate over how different farmers are doing different things. I got great benefit from that. So the, the signpost scheme seemed to be just a kind of a, a level higher of that or maybe a bit more recording rather than anecdotal evidence of what people think they're doing. You know, there was the benefit of having... John's expertise more available on the farm or um, to kind of put anything we did try that we could kind of measure it more accurately rather than kind of just my own little experiments and things that I was trying. So I didn't take much convincing when it came to joining it. Um, and then if people came to visit my farm, I don't know, I suppose one thing that I'm getting asked about a lot, and there seems to be a lot of interest in with other tailage farmers, is the use of organic fertilisers. It's something that very little was done with in the past, um, because farms tended to be all tillage or all stock. The day of the mixed farm was kind of gone, but most of the farmers that I know, the tillage farmers I know of, are looking at organic fertilisers and not just their nutrient value, but what they can bring to the soil that you can't buy in a bag, you know, from the soil structure and the bacteria and things that would be in the soil that you need. So I think how we are handling our organic fertilizer, how we're, say, swapping straw for dung or taking on poultry manure or some dairy sludge and things like that. And what we're trying to do is to treat these organic fertilizers with the same accuracy you would treat um, you know, chemical fertilizer where weighing as it goes into the spreader so we know exactly what weight we're putting out. We're getting it analyzed for its nutrient value and then it's spread via GPS. So you know our, our, our accuracy of how it's put out is as good as it can be. Um, we're going to do some setting up now this year with the fertilizer spreader on spread pattern just to make sure we're you know, using it as effectively and as efficiently as possible. I suppose that's something I think that other tillage farmers may find interesting because I know it's an area that's been looked at a lot now. Oh, I think you're definitely right. I think a lot of people certainly will be will be very interested in that element that you're carrying out in your farm. Don, I want to thank you very much for your um your really good answers and um for your for your time today for 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 the podcast and certainly john as well for for your time as well so guys thanks very much and hopefully we'll come back to you again maybe towards the end of the year or early next year that would be great Michael. thanks for having me so that's it for the tillage edge and my thanks to don and john for joining me today 
And of course, if you have suggestions about a topic you'd like to hear more about, then drop me an email at michael.hennessy at chagas.ie or at Chagas Crops. We always want to hear from farmers or people in the industry about what interests them, so please do get in touch. So finally, don't forget if you enjoyed the podcast and recommend it to a friend or colleague, and as always, rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.